Was the United States responsible for the coup that removed Prime Minister Imran Khan from power? How does the ability for the Pakistan state apparatus stack up against the determined will of vast numbers of rally supporters for Khan? Did Pakistan play a secret role in the support of Al-Qaeda leading up to the September 11th attacks? What was the true agenda for waging the war on terrorism against Afghanistan? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as the war continues in Ukraine, we bring you a full examination of one of the most shocking geopolitical developments in recent times, the controversial removal of the popular Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan from power, the players involved, and the future for the country and the wider region. In our first half hour, we will be joined by Professor Junaid Ahmad, who will provide us with more details as to how and why the new confidence motion and exit of Khan took place, and also focusing on the enormous rallies surging around the iconic figure. Then in our second half hour, we bring back a past interview with Professor Michel Chalcedovsky, Director of the Center for Research on Globalization, to talk about how the U.S. allies in Pakistan, the ISI, worked toward feeding the very enemy they supposedly came to see as a great evil, and more on Afghanistan 20 years earlier. On this week's program, the removal of Imran Khan and the popular pushback, how Pakistan helped foster the war on terrorism. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 6, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. I believe World War III is closer than ever before, so why does Washington want this war in the first place? Well, since the U.S. economy is collapsing with tensions increasing between liberals and conservatives, and an increase of violent crime that is sweeping across the nation, followed by an influx of illegal immigration on its southern borders, Washington has failed on every level. This leads to what Gerald Salente of the Trends Journal has famously said, quote, when all else fails, they take you to war, unquote. Given the rapid decline of the U.S. empire, Salente's, quote, should not be taken lightly during these dangerous times. War is coming soon. Times will be very different, so prepare for the worst. That comes from the article, World War III is Closer Than Ever, 
U.S. war machine to increase lethal military aid by sending suicide drones to Ukraine. By Timothy Alexander Guzman, posted May 4th, originally published on the author's blog, Silent Crow News. Everyone needs to understand that the neoconservatives' ideology of hegemony is an expansionist ideology. It is the American empire that is expanding toward Russia, not Russia expanding into the West. It is truly amazing how opposite from the truth the anti-Russian propaganda is. Sooner or later, the Kremlin will comprehend that Russia's enemies are the American neoconservatives and that the pressure point on the neoconservatives is Israel. As my audience knows, I have been concerned for years that Russia's low-key response to provocations brings about more and more dangerous provocations that eventually will bring Armageddon upon us. That comes from the article, Are the Neocons Setting Up the World for Nuclear War? by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted May 4th, originally published in PCR Institute for Political Economy. Combined with attempts of a crawling reformation of the UN, the creation of a global NATO, whatever it may be called, would spell a disaster for the security of the world. The North Atlantic Alliance has a dubious security track record, to say the least. Despite being formed as a supposedly defensive security pact, the alliance is anything but. It has so far attacked numerous countries, starting with the destruction of former Yugoslavia to invasions and bombings all across the Middle East, stretching from Libya to Afghanistan. Concurrently, the belligerent alliance is continuing its expansion in Europe, getting ever closer to Russian borders. That comes from the article, Global NATO to have disastrous effect on world security, shift in world order, by Drago Bosnik, posted May 4th, originally published on Infobricks. The reason that the United States has been overrun with COVID-19 propaganda and that the government acted as a toy of the rich, pushing through policies that have no support, is that the entire system was gutted in the aftermath of 9-11 and a stark tyranny has replaced the flawed republic that once stood behind the halls of government. The United States, after 9-11, is a republic in the sense that Disneyland is a republic. COVID-19 will be replaced by artificial food shortages, planned inflation, the end of money, the promotion of mass surveillance, social credit totalitarian economics, and a host of other strategies for control. Only when we Americans are ready to go back to the original sin of 9-11 and look at ourselves in the mirror, only when we are ready to take brave action and to cut off the gangrene parts of the federal government that have metastasized into an enemy within, only then can we make any progress in fighting against the techno-tyrants who call the shots for the narcissistic and indulgent politicians who appear on television. The 9-11 incident 
that is to say, the bombing of the World Trade Center, the firing of a projectile in the Pentagon, and the various secret policies carried out to create a shadow government within the federal government in cooperation with foreign interests in Israel, in Great Britain, and elsewhere, was the final blow to what remained of Republican government in the United States of America. That comes from the article, 9-11 Truth, the key to ending COVID-19 buried in the 9-11 narrative and the WTC wreckage by Emmanuel Pastrache and Dan Hanley, posted May 4th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Third, a no-confidence motion was brought out against the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. The motion was at first dismissed and Khan dissolved the National Assembly. However, the Supreme Court of Pakistan ruled these actions were unconstitutional, and so the motion was back in play. On April 10th, the majority 174 members uh, belonging to the opposition parties to Khan's rule voted for Khan's removal, making it the first time in history that a Pakistani prime minister was removed from office in this manner. The ramifications could end up being profound as Imran Khan was becoming a thorn in the side of US interests in the region. To enlighten us further about this geopolitically profound event, we contacted an individual who was monitoring the situation closely. Junaid S. Ahmad teaches religion, law, and politics, and is the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality. Uh, he is also a regular contributor to Global Research, and he is himself from Pakistan, and he's based right now in New York City. Professor Ahmad, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's a real pleasure. Imran Khan was removed by a vote of no confidence, which had the backing of internal forces within Pakistan's National Assembly, yet Khan has the impression it was the work of the United States. Where does that foreign country fit in? Well, Michael, the circumstances under which all of the developments that took place uh, beginning in late February, early March, is what made uh, the whole situation seem like a traditional, what we can call a, a regime change operation, a, a an engineered color revolution in a country. We who have observed this type of phenomena uh, throughout the world in places like Latin America, especially, uh, but other places as well, have been have noticed the stark similarities of what transpired in Pakistan over these past uh, two months. And you know, some of the ingredients that were very uh, familiar with where in terms of the mass media all of a sudden becoming anti uh, Imran Khan, the uh, political parties that normally uh, despise each other all of a sudden coming together uh, to oppose Khan. Khan's own party, uh, both in terms of uh, the coalition parties that have been with Khan, as well as 
members of his own party immediately defecting, going to one side, and a general climate being uh, manufactured in the country that's very hostile to Khan. So we, the, the rapidity uh, with which all of these things were happening uh, made us quite suspicious about you know, what exactly is going on. And of course, then Imran Khan himself uh, revealed that there, were, there was a, a cable, diplomatic cable that uh, indicated the American uh, Assistant Secretary of State, named him Donald Liu, had pressured uh, the Pakistani ambassador that, and this was even before the opposition had motioned for a vote of no confidence, even before then, we get an American uh, official saying to the Pakistanis that if this vote of no confidence succeeds in removing Imran Khan, then we, the United States, will forgive Pakistan. Now, we don't know forgive for what, but supposedly some infractions have taken place. But if it doesn't succeed, then there will be an incre uh, incredibly tough uh, and rough consequences for Pakistan. So if you put all of these things together, and of course, the uh, the one, uh, perhaps the most important factor is the way that the uh, military, the army chief of staff, which anyone familiar with Pakistani politics knows how Im important uh, the uh, role is of the Pakistani military in political life. Once the army chief of, of staff also gave uh, public uh, positions, also you know, uh, spoke about things in a completely opposite way than what Imran Khan was speaking about. And the, basically one of the main issues was this Russian invasion of Ukraine in which uh, Imran Khan was being uh, contacted relentlessly by the West, uh, being de de demanding that he condemn the Russian invasion. He didn't, he stayed neutral. Whereas all of a sudden the chief of army staff in Pakistan contradicts him and starts to condemn Russia and so on. So, you know, Michael, if we add all of these things together uh, and the very you know, rapid nature in which all of these things happened, it seemed to many of us uh, as a standard uh, regime change operation by Washington with a so-called constitutional uh, cover. Mm. Well, I mean, could you go in, into a little bit more detail? I mean, the, the principal reasons that you think the U.S. actually triggered this action. I mean, uh, it wasn't just uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the action towards uh, Russia, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely, Michael. I think whenever I'm asked this question and uh, people ask, you know, what motives the United States uh, would have to target Khan? And I always say, well, actually plenty. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, with uh, Imran Khan, this goes uh, well before he, even he became, uh, when becoming prime minister in 2018. Imran Khan, since 2001 and the beginning of the so-called war on terror, had consistently opposed the war on terror and specifically it, uh, its AFPAC, Afghanistan-Pakistan uh, theater, meaning the invasion, the occupation of Afghanistan and its spillover effects into Pakistan, his uh, proposition was uh, very straightforward that he opposes it both uh, because it's immoral, it's the human toll that it's taken in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and because it's counterproductive, that in fact, these actions are going to fuel uh, militancy in these regions. And you know he was absolutely proven right. I mean, so not only was it uh, the Pakistani state's collaboration with Washington in the war in Afghanistan, but then also 
submitting to uh, what Washington wanted the Pakistani military to do inside Pakistan, that is conduct massive military operations uh, in which the human toll was, uh, was, was, was horrible in terms of internal displacement, mass deaths, and then you have drone strikes. So Imran Khan had been a consistent critic of all of these things. The only uh, major political figure, public figure, to take these positions. And you know, this is why throughout the period of the war on terror, he was uh, despised by Washington. Now, when Trump uh, came to office, uh, he, Trump as, uh, you, you know, you may know Michael and many of us who have followed what was going on, Trump and the American national security state were not on the same page. In fact, they, uh, you know, many things, they really despised Trump. But, but the reason why Trump got along with, with Khan is because Trump was interested in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And Khan, as he has said numerous times, he will be a friend in peace, but not a friend in war. So he was more than willing to allow these that the peace to go forward. But so that I think is the one uh, major factor, Michael. The American national security state has never forgiven Khan for basically being right about Afghanistan. So that that's one thing. In addition, Michael, uh, you know, in terms of foreign policy. Uh, Pakistan has always had a very close relationship with China. That relationship only deepened under Imran Khan, and particularly the, the personal relationship that he developed with President Xi Jinping, uh, the uh, vocal position in defense of Kashmiri self-determination. We've had Pakistani leaders and so on uh, give some, you know, uh, you know, rhetorical uh, uh, you know, remarks here and there, but some, someone who has very powerfully spoken about uh, Kashmiri self-determination. And I think the one thing that <laughs> probably got him most in trouble is his consistent defense of Palestinian uh, rights and, and their uh, struggle for self-determination. Because we have to understand, Michael, we were, we've been in a context in which many of these so-called Muslim and Arab governments have uh, op openly started to embrace Israel, have begun to, quote unquote, normalize relations with Israel, and there was immense pressure on Pakistan to do so. We have evidence now that dominant sections of the ruling elite, both of the military and the civilian, were willing to go along, thinking this will get them in the good books of Washington. Khan consistently opposed that and has consistently been speaking about Palestine. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, I think the, the, the main idea uh, for Khan in you know, taking these positions is to carve out an independent foreign policy for Pakistan, one that does not make it completely subservient and servile to Washington, which has been the case since the Cold War days, that Pakistan has just been a client state uh, of the United States. So fundamentally, Khan was challenging that, uh, and that's what got him in trouble with all of these various power centers within Pakistan, within the Gulf, say, countries like Saudi Arabia, and of course, with Washington uh, and Tel Aviv. Well, I mean, you uh, mentioned uh, in a recent article that he's not uh, perfect. I mean, he's got his deficits uh, on the economic file, for example, uh, and yet these rallies are rising up and that they are huge. I believe the hugest in history. Uh, is this all built simply on his opposition to uh, the uh, the U.S. power system, or, or what is the? Why are so many people, so many people, coming out and supporting Imran Khan? Michael, this is the most important question because, uh, as I was saying to you, and I've said to many others, that even 
if we concede uh, the many criticisms of, of Khan and his uh, period of, in, in governance of, uh, over the country, uh, the question right now is why are we seeing the largest uh, rallies and demonstrations in our country's history uh, as soon as he was ousted from power? Uh, and I think that this, uh, this escapes very simplistic explanations. I think that it was also very clear, so we, I spoke about the foreign policy uh, front, but in terms of domestic policy, Khan certainly before coming to power, the, the, uh, the, the slogan, the themes that got him very popular were his opposition to the, to the incredible exploitative and corrupt ruling elites that Pakistan has. And that, that obviously made him very popular. And even before coming to power, he had said that, look, we cannot, uh, we have to oppose the IMF. We have to move towards uh, an Islamic welfare state, uh, you know, a social democracy, these types of things, which, you know, is unheard of in Pakistan. So these would be certainly steps forward. However, while in power, he was not able to do much at all. And I think most of us recognize, I think he even has admitted now that uh, the quote unquote electables that he had to include in the party were, the, them, were themselves the biggest impediment to trying to implement any type of uh, social democratic reformist uh, program. So those crit criticisms have been valid that he's had to go to the IMF. He's not been able to do uh, a lot of things. Some things he has been, say, national health insurance, you know, which are not small. But, but there's, uh, those, many of those criticisms are valid now. But then we ask the question, why are these same people, and perhaps even more at this point, still coming out on, uh, on the streets? I think that they really do fundamentally believe that this is a man who wants to uh, accomplish what he said he wants to do, but is really up against, and this is obvious by now, is against virtually every single power center domestically as well as internationally, especially in terms of Washington and the Gulf countries. Domestically, whether it's the entire political class of these you know, political mafias, whether it's the, the chief of army staff, you know, the, the mass media, the, the supremely political and corrupt uh, Supreme Court and judiciary. So he, people see this, that he's up against all of these power centers and they don't want to, uh, they want, don't, don't want to betray him at this point. And their revulsion and contempt at the way these uh, ruling elites have governed the country for the past 70 plus years, I think is compelling them to still go out on the streets because they want something new, something different. And I still have some hope that Khan can, can play that role. And, and we have more evidence that clearly uh, domestically and, and uh, from Washington, there's been such an assault on, on what's going on. Michael, just one last thing. I mentioned the chief of army staff. I think it's important for our um, viewers and audience to know that this does not mean that the entire military is a, a part of this project engine, you know, cooked up in Washington to oust Imran Khan. It, it, we, what, what's clear that it's only a few members of the military top brass, especially the chief of army staff, General Bajwa. What is becoming overwhelmingly clear is the vast majority of junior officers and the soldiers are uh, firmly with Khan. And this is something very, very interesting and unprecedented in Pakistani history where you have had a very unified and, and united uh, military. So this is also another interesting development. For sure. Well, you have people in power who are, who are towing the, the line for the United States. 
uh, but you also have all these masses of people in the rallies. Are the people making their wrath known to government authorities? Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, this last point I made about uh, the support for Khan not just being you know the, the masses, you know, when the you know in, in all corners of the country, which is also incredibly important to point out, Pakistan is often very divided along provincial lines, whether it's the big province of the Punjab, where the one political party is, is, is based, the PMLN, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz Sharif group, or the province of Sindh, where another political party is based. The, the uh, incredible uh, the incredible part uh, or the uh, characteristic of the PTI, Pakistan Tariq Insaf, which is Khan's party, the Movement for Justice, is that it really is a national party. Like, so every corner of Pakistan, from the tribal areas to the northwestern area where the Pashtuns live, had the largest single day rally in the history of that province. I mean, it was something, or, or whether in the urban areas of Karachi or in Punjab. So the thing with Khan's popularity is that for the first time, we've seen a political party, a political personality that attracts uh, the support from all corners of the country. So I think that in addition to that, what I said about also uh, dom dominant sections of the officers, junior officers especially, and the soldiers who don't have uh, an, anything at stake in having this close relationship to Washington, meaning they don't get the, the kind of financial uh, perks that the top generals do. Majority of them are on the side of Khan. And I think th these are the factors why the, the very unstable and fragile coalition government of God knows about 18 political parties, as well as the military cannot do anything to kind of engage in repression because I think that would only backfire. Uh, and you may even see an internal revolt uh, within the military itself. So, uh, and it looks as if Imran uh, will most likely run for the election again. Um, what kind, I mean, I don't think the, uh, the U.S. and its colleagues on the ground want that. What kind of uh, actions could be taken to, to either block him or, or otherwise frustrate his attempts to, to win back power? Right. So this is uh, a very uncertain and, and potentially dangerous time uh, that uh, we're in in Pakistan. I think that the whole idea uh, um, behind Imran Khan uh, you know, um, and his response to what was going on against him over these past few weeks was basically a, a desire, a call for early elections. I mean, which, of course, the opposition parties that are now in government, they didn't want. They knew that Khan, despite his, his years in office in which he was not able to do much, still would probably win in an overwhelming way. So contrary to the propaganda, it's not like Khan was interested in any type of military coup. I mean, that would actually be a pointless for him in which the top generals by now despise Khan. He was interested in, okay, if it's the case, you don't have faith in our government, uh, that let's have early elections. But, and that's what, he, that's what these mass mobilizations are attempting to uh, advance vis-a-vis uh, -vis the current government that they need to recognize that they really do not have the mass support and early elections do need to take place. But that, we, we don't know uh, how quickly that will happen. But to your other point, Michael, that yes, right now, because it's quite visible that there's, that Khan is certainly not gone from the political scene, that in fact, it seems pretty easy for him to make a comeback in such a situation when he has such powerful enemies 
both domestic and foreign. Uh, you can imagine, Michael, that there is a, a serious uh, uh, th threat, uh, perceived threat or danger of assassination. I think that would be probably the the, the biggest way to kind of uh, end what's going on. Um, Khan uh, is a larger than life personality and so on. And so I think that th this is a very serious thing. I think beyond that, as long as Khan is alive and active, I think that we, we will continue to be inspired by the masses of people coming out on the streets. Again, these are not uncritical blind followers of Khan. These are people that want to imagine a different, a new Pakistan that is free from the uh, corrupt ruling elites. But I think that right now, uh, many people are fearing the targeting of Khan in such type of a thing. So we'll, we'll just have to see how things uh, go, go forward. Okay, Professor Aman, uh, it's been really good to talk to you and uh, to speak with you. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking with Professor Junaid S. Ahmad, the teacher and the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality. We reached him in New York City. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We now turn to the very first interview the Global Research News Hour hosted on My Watch. It was part of a review of the attack on Afghanistan initiated three weeks after the September 11th attacks. Unlike under Imran Khan, in this conversation, Pakistan was firmly under the control of the United States. We also discussed the true purpose of the war on terrorism, the reality of Osama bin Laden's known whereabouts on September 10th, and much more. Professor Michelle Chalcedovsky is the founder and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa, and an award-winning author of 11 books, including The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Uh, yet it is the September 11 attacks which uh, essentially provided the justification uh, for waging that war. Could you expand on that a little bit? I mean, what necessarily has to be happening for uh, an invasion of that kind? I mean, where, like, in terms of the... Uh, the, the logistics and, and so on? Well, the logistics, I mean, to wage a war where you have to deploy naval power, uh, you have to deploy land forces, uh, air force, and so on, uh, very far from your, you know, from, from your base, uh, in other words, in, in, in Central Asia, requires months and months and months of planning. Military analysts know that a, a, a theater war of that uh, of that magnitude can take up to a year of advanced planning, of coordination. So it is virtually impossible that war plans uh, were initiated on September 12, 2001. They were already on the drawing board, and uh, the U.S. military and its allies were in advanced state of readiness. And this is actually confirmed even by a BBC report that said that that in the month of July, the United States was planning a war on Af Afghanistan. But I think, uh, to get back to the more substantive issue, 
of September 11. The legal argument is that both the United States and NATO invaded Afghanistan because Afghanistan attacked America on September 11, 2001 which is it's a dramatic uh, statement to make because, first of all, under no stretch of the imagination were, was Afghanistan involved in those attacks. The Afghan government said that they would remit Osama bin Laden to the U.S. justice system if there was tentative provisional evidence to the fact that he was involved in the 9-11 attacks. And those diplomatic overtures were turned down by the U.S. administration. And moreover, if you look at the record as to where Osama bin Laden was on September 11, 2001, where was he? He wasn't in Afghanistan. He was in Pakistan. And he was, in fact, hospitalized in a Pakistani military hospital on the 10th of September, 2001, and released shortly thereafter. His whereabouts were known. Uh, Pakistan is a major ally of the United States. The Pakistani military owns that hospital in Rawalpindi. And this is confirmed by report uh, by Dan Rather, CBS News, to the fact that enemy number one, Osama bin Laden, was in fact hospitalized um, on day prior to the 9-11 attacks. Mm -hmm. So that is one element. Could you, speaking of Pakistan, uh, could you maybe explain the role of uh, Pakistan's intelligence services? Well, Pakistan in, uh, intelligence services, the ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence, are very closely linked up to the CIA. In fact, they, they virtually operate as a subsidiary, and that goes back to, it goes back to the Soviet-Afghan war. And um, it's very difficult for uh, one to imagine that uh, bin Laden would have been able to go into a hospital on the, you know, on the day before 9-11 unnoticed without the support of the Pakistani military in a city which is literally swarming with U.S. military advisors, with the counterparts of, of, uh, of the ISI and the Pakistani High Command. So that is one aspect of, the, of this discussion. It's, it has to do with the, with the Al-Qaeda legend. But, more sub, um, uh, but there's another element of, of substance. Uh, even if we accept the official 9-11 narrative, namely that al-Qaeda was behind these attacks, it is hard to imagine that Afghanistan would be involved in a military operation under the doctrine of collective security, namely that Afghanistan actually attacked America. Okay? The, the terrorists may have attacked America, then the question is, did the Afghan government support those terrorists? Yes or no? There's absolutely no evidence to that effect. But there's absolutely no evidence to the fact that Afghanistan actually attacked America on September 
11, 2001. And that is the substance of Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. Mm. It, it, it stipulates that a member state uh, is attacked from abroad by a foreign power. And it is only under those circumstances that the clause of collective security is, is, um, is invoked as relevant um, in taking action and retaliation against that foreign power. And bear in mind, under the doctrine of self-defense, in other words, what they're saying is, we were attacked, we, didn't, we were attacked by Afghanistan, and in self-defense, we are now waging war on Afghanistan. That is the biggest lie in American history and in Canadian history. President Bush uh, at the time uh, had invoked uh, the, I guess what's called the Bush Doctrine, which acknowledged that they, they were taking the war or basically would not make a distinction between the terrorists and those that harbored them. And uh, I think that's almost a direct uh, quote. So do you, I mean, are we talking then about this essentially being an illegal doctrine? Well, it is a, there are two uh, uh, overlapping lies. One is the 9-11 narrative, which states that al-Qaeda is behind these attacks. I won't get into that. But the second lie is, uh, is that al-Qaeda was supported by the Afghan government. And, and I would say there's a third lie. <laughs> the third lie is Afghanistan attacked America on September 11, 2001, which is an absurd proposition. Okay. Because when you attack a country, well, you come in with, uh, visibly with, uh, with a military and, and so on, and uh, an air force and naval power and so on. That is what is called a theater war. Now, Afghanistan, which, which is an impoverished uh, country uh, um, of 25 million people in Southeast, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Central Asia, under no stretch of the imagination did Afghanistan attack America. And it, and then you have to start saying, well, did they actually support Al Qaeda? I say no, they didn't support Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda is a creation of the CIA. The CIA supported Al Qaeda. That was my first reaction when I, when I read those reports in the in the on the morning of September 12th in the in the in the U.S. media. Uh, namely retribution against the state sponsors of mm -hmm. al-Qaeda, well, my, what came to mind was that al-Qaeda, the state sponsors the United States government, <laughs> its intelligence apparatus, and it has, been, it has been right from the outset, and nobody actually denies that. Under no stretch of the imagination had the Afghan government supported al-Qaeda, and certainly under no stretch of the imagination had Afghanistan attacked um, a member state of the Atlantic Alliance, which then was invoked to mobilize Canadian participation in this military adventure Professor 11 Chos years later. Just Professor Chosodovsky, I think it's well acknowledged by uh, official sources that Osama bin Laden actually did work 
with the CIA, but he 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 uh, they uh, he changed. He he basically worked against his sponsor, and so uh, he created Al Qaeda, and now they uh, you know they they created kind of a Frankenstein's monster, and now he's turning against his creators. What what do you say to that kind of? Uh, well, that is a nonsensical. Um statement and the reason it's a nonsensical statement is that we have evidence of al-qaeda um, being supported by the u.s military throughout the 90s and in fact in ju just a few months before uh, just a few months before um, the 9-11 attacks uh, I, to be more specific uh, in the civil war in Macedonia, there's evidence. There's evidence of um, U.S. military working hand in glove with, uh, you know, with uh, um, with members of of Al Qaeda in an insurrection. And this happened, I mean, this happened two or three months before 9-11. It's, it's, a, it's a very important occurrence. In, in, uh, it was, these, were, these were KLA, NLA terrorists linked up to al-Qaeda with U.S. military advisors. And this took place barely a few months before the 9-11 attacks. Um, and there's ample evidence to that effect, Okay. There's ample evidence it was revealed, and, and we have documents to that effect. We can go back to Bosnia, Kosovo, where we have al-Qaeda operatives working hand in glove. Well, but we don't even need to go back prior to 9-11. We have uh, evidence that uh, the U.S. government is supporting al-Qaeda in Syria, has supported al-Qaeda-affiliated groups in, in Libya, they are the foot soldiers of the uh, of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So th this is an absurd um, proposition to say that there's been a blowback and that Al Qaeda has against, has gone against their sp their intelligence sponsors. They remain intelligence assets of the CIA and um, and other. Uh, Western uh, intelligence uh, agencies, including MI6 and, of course, Israel's uh, Mossad. But if we want to focus uh, more on the on the question of uh, why are we in Afghanistan today? Why uh, why is our military, the Canadian military, um, involved in an illegal war? We have to. Uh, address the issue of NATO's decision, which was taken on the morning of September 12th. In other words, uh, NATO, the Atlantic Council, met on September 12th, uh, less than 24 hours after the event. There was no evidence of who was behind it, but they uh, adopted a uh, provisional resolution, which essentially reads as follows. If it is determined that the attacks, September 11, 2001, against the United States was directed from abroad, namely Afghanistan, against 
the, quote, North Atlantic area. It shall be regarded as an action covered by Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. Now, what happened on the morning of September 12, 2001 in Brussels is that this resolution was not actually a declaration of war against Afghanistan. It was a de facto declaration, and, and military preparations were ongoing. But what they said is that we have to make sure that um, Afghanistan was, in fact, behind these September 11 attacks. Okay, so that really was the, the basis. And to that effect, a few weeks late, a couple of weeks later, the Atlantic um, Council, in consultation with uh, the United States government, um, commissioned, so to speak, a report which was to be written by a senior U.S. State Department official named Frank Taylor. Frank Taylor had the mandate to verify whether, in fact, Afghanistan was behind the attacks, etc., etc., uh, and uh, whether uh, al-Qaeda was, in fact, sponsored by a foreign government. And um, I can't comment on this mysterious Frank Taylor report because it, it has remained classified. But what happened is that uh, the final decision to invoke Article 5 in relation to the 9-11 attacks um, came a few days before the actual attack on Afghanistan occurred. It was on October 7th. The second, five days before the commencement of the bombing and invasion of Afghanistan, that Frank Taylor uh, submitted his report uh, to the North Atlantic Council, and um, that uh, report remained classified to the extent that no, uh, no details of its contents were actually revealed to the, the Western media at the time. It was not released. I presume it was circulated among um, uh, heads of government, head, uh, heads of state, heads of government of, of, uh, of NATO member states. And um, NATO's Secretary General, Lord Robertson, at the time, uh, summarized the substance of this mysterious Frank Taylor report in a press release uh, saying that, um, uh, I quote, and this this was on the 2nd, I believe it was on the 2nd of, um, of October, uh, to the fact that the United States, uh, the United States, bear in mind, briefed the North Atlantic Council on the results of an investigation into who was responsible for the horrific terrorist attacks which took place on September 11. In other words, the investigation was entrusted to the U.S. State Department acting on behalf of the North Atlantic Council. So the briefing was given by Ambassador Frank Taylor and so on and so forth. And um, what, what uh, Secretary General Lord Robertson says to the media, quote, today was classified briefing, and so I cannot give you all the details, okay? Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that the results of the investigation so far 
what is known about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda organization, the involvement in the attacks and previous terrorist activity, etc., and the links between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. The facts are clear and compelling, according to, uh, to the NATO Secretary General, uh, and the information presented points conclusively uh, to an Al-Qaeda role in the September 11 attacks, and that, uh, and, uh, and that Al-Qaeda was, in fact, supported by what they call the Taliban regime, which is the Afghan government. Okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, what we have is a very tenuous uh, legal argument to the fact that Al-Qaeda was behind the attacks and that the Afghan government was behind Al-Qaeda Pari Passu, Afghanistan attacked the United States of America, the Atlantic area, on September 11, 2001, and the United States and its allies on the grounds of self-defense under the doctrine of collective security waged war on Afghanistan. And people across Canada should know that. It was based on a very tenuous uh, manipulated uh, procedure with a mysterious Frank Taylor report. There's absolutely no evidence that this country, several thousand miles away, in any regards, waged a war on, on the North Atlantic region, namely on the United States. Professor Chosodovsky, if the real reason for this war on terrorism is not to fight terrorism, which you are arguing is a, a U.S. Uh, intelligence proxy, then what is the real reason for going into Afghanistan? Well, the real reason for going into Afghanistan, I think there's several reasons. But first of all, Afghanistan is a hub, a very strategic hub in Central Asia. And it's also part of a, of a broader military agenda. It borders onto, onto Iran, Pakistan, uh, onto f- several former Soviet uh, uh, republics. It's at the hub of, um, of, of a region which encompasses something of the order of 60% of the global oil and gas reserves. Uh, but... Uh, Another aspect is that Afghanistan is also a bonanza of mineral resources and natural gas. At the time, nobody discussed that. There was acknowledgement of the fact that um, Afghanistan was strategic uh, from the military standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, you know, it had borders with Iran, and, and, and if you're looking at the broader military agenda, uh, it, it, it made sense to, uh, to go in and, and invade Afghanistan. It was also very much an issue of competing powers, namely the fact that uh, Afghanistan um, had historically had relations with the with the Soviet Union going back to the 70s, uh, and that this um, country was considered by Washington to belong within the U.S. 
sphere of influence. And uh, essentially, we saw uh, that that war commenced in 1979. Uh, it was called the Soviet-Afghan War, but it was, it, in essence, it was also a, a U.S.-led war because the United States was supporting the Mujahideen, uh, namely al-Qaeda, uh, which were the foot soldiers um, of the well, of the United States at the time. Uh, so that is the background. Um, there, there are also, and that has been revealed subsequently, there are, there, there's tremendous mineral wealth, particularly uh, with regard to lithium, which is the, the raw material entering into the production of batteries. But there's, there's natural gas, and the, the natural gas of Afghanistan is, is, uh, is very substantive. Uh, there was also debate on the on the issue of of the trans Afghan pipeline, and the fact that the Afghan government uh, attempted to, uh, in, in 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 essence, the, the Afghan government refused to follow Washington's uh, demands uh, as far as the the geopolitical control of that pipeline route uh, at the time by, by UNICAL, which was a major U.S. corporation. They were having negotiations with the Taliban, weren't they? Well, there were negotiations with the Taliban with regard to this pipeline, and the Taliban were at the same time negotiating with an Argentinian um, uh, uh, oil company. Um, and... Uh, uh, they were, in a sense, exercising some level of political sovereignty, which did not uh, did not go on too well in the in the in the U.S. State Department. But I should also mention that there are a number of other factors. First of all, the the Taliban government was installed with the support of the United States. Now, perhaps they didn't quite follow in the footsteps of the United States as far as doing what Washington wanted them to do. But nonetheless, they were, they were, they were supported right from the beginning in, in the, you know, in the late seventies, the Taliban were the, the graduates from the Quranic school set up by the CIA and so on. But it, in, after installing the Taliban government, they exercised certain element of political uh, sovereignty and independence in relation to uh, to the United States, and this came up in the uh, negotiations pertaining to the the Trans-Afghan pipeline. But there's another very important dimension, and it has to do with the drug trade. Uh, in in the year 2000, the Taliban government, uh, in consultation with the United Nations, implemented a major drug eradication program, which in the course of virtually within the course of a year, led to a massive collapse in the production of, um, of opium, Opium production uh, by Afghanistan fell by more than 90% in the year 2001. It was less than 200 tons. 
And uh, we must bear in mind that opium is a multi-billion dollar operation, which leads to the production of grade four heroin, and that Afghanistan, uh, in fact, produced in the course of the 90s uh, in excess of 90% of, um, of heroin in the world. So it is, it is the largest producer of heroin, and that heroin production has been protected by U.S. intelligence. It is a financial bonanza for um, Western financial institutions, uh, organized crime, which um, uh, is involved in the wholesale and retail trade of heroin in Western markets. Um, it's worth noting that the moment U.S. troops entered Afghanistan, the drug trade was restored to its historical levels gradually. Today, uh, the narcotics economy, which had collapsed in 2001, is something of the order of 30 times the levels which existed during the Talib in, in the last year of the Taliban government. So that immediately the opium production went back to its historical levels and it has increased dramatically to something of the order of 6,500 tons uh, uh, in, in the current context. So basically what you're saying is that Afghanistan was important because of its geostrategic positioning, because of the, the pipelines, the mineral and natural gas wealth, and the opium as well. Absolutely. And it's also, uh, if you look at the region, that, that broader region, well, it's, it's the broader uh, Eurasian corridor, Middle East Eurasian corridor, uh, which is the object of U.S. military intervention. I, I should say that even stretches uh, also from the Balkans, so that the war in Afghanistan is, is, uh, has to be understood within that broader framework. It, it's not strictly Afghanistan which is the target. It's, it's also the neighboring countries. And we can see how, in fact, uh, this broader military agenda today is unfolding. Uh, Syria is under, under threat. Iran is being threatened. Iran is, it has borders with Afghanistan. Afghanistan used to be part of Iran. Um, Pakistan is threatened. Uh, in fact, de facto, there's a war against Pakistan at this very moment with the drone attacks. Uh, you know, the United States is not officially at war with, uh, with Pakistan, but de facto they're waging, they're waging war on Pakistan. And, uh, and so that, that whole region uh, is, is, in a sense, is, is part of a military agenda, and Afghanistan is one step or stage of that military agenda. That was Professor Michelle Chosodovsky from our very first Global Research News Hour conversation now almost 10 years ago. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. 
The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.